April 1st through April 7th, of Morning and Evening Daily Readings. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Ockenick. Morning and Evening Daily Readings by Charles Spurgeon. Morning, April 1st. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 2. For several days we have been dwelling upon the Saviour's passion, and for some little time to come we shall linger there. In beginning a new month, let us seek the same desires after our Lord as those which glowed in the heart of the elect spouse. See how she leaps at once to him. There are no prefatory words. She does not even mention his name. She is in the heart of her theme at once, for she speaks of him who was the only him in the world to her. How bold is her love! It was much condescension which permitted the weeping penitent to anoint his feet with spikenard. It was rich love which allowed the gentle Mary to sit at his feet and learn of him. But here, love, strong, fervent love, aspires to higher tokens of regard and closer signs of fellowship. Esther trembled in the presence of Ahasuerus, but the spouse in joyful liberty of perfect love knows no fear. If we have received the same free spirit, we also may ask the like. By kisses we suppose to be intended those varied manifestations of affection by which the believer is made to enjoy the love of Jesus. The kiss of reconciliation we enjoyed at our conversion, and it was sweet as honey dropping from the comb. The kiss of acceptance is still warm on our brow, as we know that he hath accepted our persons and our works through rich grace. The kiss of daily present communion is that which we pant after to be repeated day after day, till it is changed into the kiss of reception, which removes the soul from earth, and the kiss of consummation, which fills it with the joy of heaven. Faith is our walk, but fellowship, sensibly felt, is our rest. Faith is the road, but communion with Jesus is the well from which the pilgrim drinks. O lover of our souls, be not strange to us, let the lips of thy blessing meet the lips of our asking. Let the lips of thy fullness touch the lips of our need, and straightway the kiss will be effected. Evening, April 1st. It is time to seek the Lord. Hosea, chapter 10, verse 12. This month of April is said to derive its name from the Latin verb eperio, which signifies to open, because all the buds and blossoms are now opening, and we have arrived at the gates of the flowery year. Reader, if you are yet unsaved, may your heart, in accord with the universal awakening of nature, be opened to receive the Lord. Every blossoming flower warns you that it is time to seek the Lord. Be not out of tune with nature, but let your heart bud and bloom with holy desires. Do you tell me that the warm blood of youth leaps in your veins? Then, I entreat you, give your vigor to the Lord. It was my unspeakable happiness to be called in early youth, and I could fain praise the Lord every day for it. Salvation is priceless. 
let it come when it may, but, oh, an early salvation has a double value in it. Young men and maidens, since you may perish ere you reach your prime, it is time to seek the Lord. Ye who feel the first signs of decay, quicken your pace. That hollow cough, that hectic flush, are warnings which you must not trifle with. With you it is indeed time to seek the Lord. Did I observe a little gray mingled with your once luxurious tresses? Years are stealing on apace, and death is drawing nearer by hasty marches. Let each return of spring arouse you to set your house in order. Dear reader, if you are now advanced in life, let me entreat and implore you to delay no longer. There is a day of grace for you now. Be thankful for that, but it is a limited season and grows shorter every time that clock ticks. Here in this silent chamber, on this first night of another month, I speak to you as best I can by paper and ink, and from my inmost soul, as God's servant, I lay before you this warning. It is time to seek the Lord. Slight not that work. It may be your last call from destruction, the final syllable from the lip of grace. Morning, April 2nd. He answered him to never a word. Matthew, chapter 27, verse 14. He had never been slow of speech when he could bless the sons of men, but he would not say a single word for himself. Never man spake like this man, and never man was silent like him. Was this singular silence the index of his perfect self-sacrifice? Did it show that he would not utter a word to stay the slaughter of this sacred person which he had dedicated as an offering for us? Had he so entirely surrendered himself that he would not interfere in his own behalf, even in the minutest degree, but be bound and slain an unstruggling, uncomplaining victim? Was this silence a type of the defenselessness of sin? Nothing can be said in palliation or excuse of human guilt, and therefore he who bore its whole weight stood speechless before his judge. Is not patient silence the best reply to a gainsaying world? Calm endurance answers some questions infinitely more conclusively than the loftiest eloquence. The best apologists for Christianity in the early days were its martyrs. The anvil breaks a host of hammers by quietly bearing their blows. Did not the silent Lamb of God furnish us with a grand example of wisdom? Where every word was occasion for new blasphemy, it was the line of duty to afford no fuel for the flame of sin. The ambiguous and the false, the unworthy and mean, will ere long overthrow and confute themselves, and therefore the true can afford to be quiet, and find silence to be its wisdom. Evidently, our Lord, by his silence, furnished a remarkable fulfillment of prophecy. A long defense of himself would have been contrary to Isaiah's prediction. He is led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. By his quiet he conclusively proved himself to be the true Lamb of God. As such we salute him this morning. Be with us, Jesus, and in the silence of our heart let us hear the voice of thy love. Evening, April 2nd.
he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10 Plead for the speedy fulfillment of this promise, all ye who love the Lord. It is easy work to pray when we are grounded and bottomed, as to our desires, upon God's own promise. How can he that gave the word refuse to keep it? Immutable veracity cannot demean itself by a lie, and eternal faithfulness cannot degrade itself by neglect. God must bless his Son, his covenant binds him to it. That which the Spirit prompts us to ask for Jesus is that which God decrees to give him. Whenever you are praying for the kingdom of Christ, let your eyes behold the dawning of the blessed day which draweth near, when the crucified shall receive his coronation in the place where men rejected him. Courage, you that prayerfully work and toil for Christ with success of the very smallest kind, it shall not be so always. Better times are before you. Your eyes cannot see the blissful future. Borrow the telescope of faith. Wipe the misty breath of your doubts from the glass. Look through it, and behold the coming glory. Reader, let us ask, do you make this your constant prayer? Remember that the same Christ who tells us to say, Give us this day our daily bread, had first given us this petition. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Let not your prayers be all concerning your own sins, your own wants, your own imperfections, your own trials, but let them climb the starry ladder and get up to Christ himself, and then, as you draw nigh to the blood-sprinkled mercy seat, offer this prayer continually. Lord, extend the kingdom of thy dear Son. Such a petition, fervently presented, will elevate the spirit of all your devotions. Mind that you prove the sincerity of your prayer by laboring to promote the Lord's glory. Morning, April 3rd They took Jesus and led him away. John, chapter 19, verse 16 He had been all night in agony. He had spent the early morning at the hall of Caiaphas, he had been hurried from Caiaphas to Pilate, from Pilate to Herod, and from Herod back again to Pilate. He had, therefore, but little strength left, and yet neither refreshment nor rest were permitted him. They were eager for his blood, and therefore led him out to die, loaded with the cross. O oh, dolorous procession! Well may Salem's daughters weep. My soul, do thou weep also." What learn we here as we see our blessed Lord led forth? Do we not perceive that truth which was set forth in shadow by the scapegoat? Did not the high priest bring the scapegoat, and put both his hands upon its head, confessing the sins of the people, that thus those sins might be laid upon the goat, and cease from the people? Then the goat was led away by a fit man into the wilderness, and it carried away the sins of the people so that if they were sought for, they could not be found. Now we see Jesus brought before the priests and rulers, who pronounce him guilty. God himself imputes our sins to him, 
the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was made sin for us, and, as the substitute for our guilt, bearing our sin upon his shoulders, represented by the cross. We see the great scapegoat led away by the appointed officers of justice. Beloved, can you feel assured that he carried your sin? As you look at the cross upon his shoulders, does it represent your sin? There is one way by which you can tell whether he carried your sin or not. Have you laid your hand upon his head, confessed your sin, and trusted in him? Then your sin lies not on you. It has all been transferred by blessed imputation to Christ, and he bears it on his shoulder as a load heavier than the cross. Let not the picture vanish till you have rejoiced in your own deliverance, and adored the loving Redeemer upon whom your iniquities were laid. Evening, April 3rd All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6 here, a confession of sin common to all the elect people of God. They have all fallen, and therefore, in common chorus, they all say, from the first who entered heaven to the last who shall enter there, all we like sheep have gone astray. The confession, while thus unanimous, is also special and particular. We have turned every one to his own way. There is a peculiar sinfulness about every one of the individuals. All are sinful, but each one with some special aggravation not found in his fellow. It is the mark of genuine repentance that while it naturally associates itself with other penitents, it also takes up a position of loneliness. We have turned every one to his own way is a confession that each man had sinned against light peculiar to himself or sinned with an aggravation which he could not perceive in others. This confession is unreserved. There is not a word to detract from its force, nor a syllable by way of excuse. The confession is a giving up of all pleas of self-righteousness. It is the declaration of men who are consciously guilty, guilty with aggravations, guilty without excuse. They stand with their weapons of rebellion, broken in pieces, and cry, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Yet we hear no dolorous wailings attending this confession of sin, for the next sentence makes it almost a song. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. It is the most grievous sentence of the three, but it overflows with comfort. Strange is it that where misery was concentrated, mercy reigned. Where sorrow reached her climax, weary souls find rest. The Savior bruised is the healing of bruised hearts. See how the lowliest penitence gives place to assured confidence through simply gazing at Christ on the cross. Morning, April 4th. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 
Second Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 21. Morning, Christian, why weepest thou? Art thou mourning over thine own corruptions? Look to thy perfect Lord, and remember, thou art complete in him. Thou art in God's sight as perfect as if thou hadst never sinned. Nay, more than that, the Lord our righteousness hath put a divine garment upon thee, so that thou hast more than the righteousness of man. Thou hast the righteousness of God. O thou who art mourning by reason of inbred sin and depravity, remember, none of thy sins can condemn thee. Thou hast learned to hate sin, but thou hast learned also to know that sin is not thine. It was laid upon Christ's head. Thy standing is not in thyself. It is in Christ. Thine acceptance is not in thyself, but in thy Lord. Thou art as much accepted of God today, with all thy sinfulness, as thou wilt be when thou standest before his throne, free from all corruption. Oh, I beseech thee, lay hold on this precious thought, perfection in Christ. For thou art complete in him. With thy Saviour's garment on, thou art holy as the Holy One. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Christian, let thy heart rejoice, for thou art accepted in the Beloved. What hast thou to fear? Let thy face ever wear a smile. Live near thy Master. Live in the suburbs of the celestial city, for soon, when thy time has come, thou shalt rise up where thy Jesus sits, and reign at his right hand. And all this because the divine Lord was made to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Evening, April 4th Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 3 it is exceedingly beneficial to our souls to mount above this present evil world to something nobler and better. The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches are apt to choke everything good within us, and we grow fretful, desponding, perhaps proud and carnal. It is well for us to cut down these thorns and briars, for heavenly seed sown among them is not likely to yield a harvest. And where shall we find a better sickle with which to cut them down, than communion with God and the things of the kingdom. In the valleys of Switzerland, many of the inhabitants are deformed, and all wear a sickly appearance, for the atmosphere is charged with miasma, and is close and stagnant. But up yonder on the mountain you find a hardy race, who breathe the clear fresh air as it blows from the virgin snows of the alpine summits. It would be well if the dwellers in the valley could frequently leave their abodes among the marshes and the fever mists, and inhale the bracing element upon the hills. It is to such an exploit of climbing that I invite you this evening. May the Spirit of God assist us to leave the mists of fear and the fevers of anxiety, and all the ills which gather in this valley of earth, and to ascend the mountains of anticipated joy and blessedness. May God the Holy Spirit cut the cords that keep us here below, and assist us to mount. 
we sit too often like chained eagles fastened to the rock, only that, unlike the eagle, we begin to love our chain, and would, perhaps, if it came really to the test, be loath to have it snapped. May God now grant us grace, if we cannot escape from the chain as to our flesh, yet to do so as to our spirits, and leaving the body like a servant at the foot of the hill, may our soul, like Abraham, attain the top of the mountain, there to indulge in communion with the Most High. Morning, April 5th On him they laid the cross, that he might bear it after Jesus. Luke, chapter 23, verse 26 we see in Simon's carrying the cross a picture of the work of the church throughout all generations. She is the cross-bearer after Jesus. Mark then, Christian, Jesus does not suffer as to exclude your suffering. He bears a cross, not that you may escape it, but that you may endure it. Christ exempts you from sin, but not from sorrow. Remember that, and expect to suffer. But let us comfort ourselves with this thought, that in our case, as in Simon's, it is not our cross, but Christ's cross which we carry. When you are molested for your piety, when your religion brings the trial of cruel mockings upon you, then remember, it is not your cross, it is Christ's cross, and how delightful it is to carry the cross of our Lord Jesus. You carry the cross after him. You have blessed company. Your path is marked with the footprints of your Lord. The mark of his blood-red shoulder is upon that heavy burden. Tis his cross, and he goes before you as a shepherd goes before his sheep. Take up your cross daily and follow him. Do not forget also that you bear this cross in partnership. It is the opinion of some that Simon only carried one end of the cross and not the whole of it. That is very possible. Christ may have carried the heavier part, against the transverse beam, and Simon may have borne the lighter end. Certainly it is so with you. You do but carry the light end of the cross. Christ bore the heavier end. And remember, though Simon had to bear the cross for a very little while, it gave him lasting honor. Even so, the cross we carry is only for a little while at most, and then we shall receive the crown, the glory. Surely we should love the cross, and, instead of shrinking from it, count it very dear, when it works out for us, a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Evening, April 5th Before honor is humility. Proverbs 15, verse 33 Humiliation of soul always brings a positive blessing with it. If we empty our hearts of self, God will fill them with his love. He who desires close communion with Christ should remember the word of the Lord. To this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. Stoop if you would climb to heaven. Do we not say of Jesus, He descended, that he might ascend? So must you. You must grow downwards that you may grow upwards. For the sweetest fellowship with heaven is to be had by humble souls, and by them alone. 
God will deny no blessing to a thoroughly humbled spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, with all its riches and treasures. The whole exchequer of God shall be made over by deed of gift to the soul which is humble enough to be able to receive it, without growing proud because of it. God blesses us all up to the full measure and extremity of what it is safe for him to do. If you do not get a blessing, it is because it is not safe for you to have one. If our Heavenly Father were to let your unhumbled spirit win a victory in this holy war, you would pilfer the crown for yourself, and meeting with a fresh enemy you would fall a victim, so that you are kept low for your own safety. When a man is sincerely humble, and never ventures to touch so much as a grain of the praise, there is scarcely any limit to what God will do for him. Humility makes us ready to be blessed by the God of all grace, and fits us to deal efficiently with our fellow men. True humility is a flower which will adorn any garden. This is a sauce with which you may season every dish of life, and you will find an improvement in every case. Whether it be prayer or praise, whether it be work or suffering, the genuine salt of humility cannot be used in excess. Morning, April 6th. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp. Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 13. Jesus, bearing his cross, went forth to suffer without the gate. The Christian's reason for leaving the camp of the world's sin and religion is not because he loves to be singular, but because Jesus did so, and the disciple must follow his master. Christ was not of the world. His life and his testimony were a constant protest against conformity with the world. Never was such overflowing affection for men as you find in him. But still he was separate from sinners. In like manner, Christ's people must go forth unto him. They must take their position without the camp, as witness-bearers for the truth. They must be prepared to tread the straight and narrow path. They must have bold, unflinching, lion-like hearts, loving Christ first and his truth next, and Christ and his truth beyond all the world. Jesus would have his people go forth without the camp, for their own sanctification. You cannot grow in grace to any high degree while you are conformed to the world. The life of separation may be a path of sorrow, but it is the highway of safety, and though the separated life may cost you many pangs and make every day a battle, yet it is a happy life after all. No joy can excel that of the soldier of Christ. Jesus reveals himself so graciously and gives such sweet refreshment that the warrior feels more calm and peace in his daily strife than others in their hours of rest. The highway of holiness is the highway of communion. It is thus we shall hope to win the crown if we are enabled by divine grace faithfully to follow Christ without the camp. The crown of glory will follow the cross of separation. A moment's shame will be well recompensed by eternal honor. A little while of witness-bearing will seem nothing when we are forever with the Lord. Evening, April 6th.
In the name of the Lord I will destroy them. Psalm 118, verse 12 Our Lord Jesus, by his death, did not purchase a right to a part of us only, but to the entire man. He contemplated in his passion the sanctification of us wholly, spirit, soul, and body, that in this triple kingdom he himself might reign supreme without a rival. It is the business of the newborn nature which God has given to the regenerate to assert the rights of the Lord Jesus Christ. My soul, so far as thou art a child of God, thou must conquer all the rest of thyself which yet remains unblessed. Thou must subdue all thy powers and passions to the silver scepter of Jesus' gracious reign, and thou must never be satisfied till he who is king by purchase becomes also king by gracious coronation and reigns in thee supreme. Seeing, then, that sin has no right to any part of us, we go about a good and lawful warfare when we seek in the name of God to drive it out. O my body, thou art a member of Christ. Shall I tolerate thy subjection to the prince of darkness? O my soul, Christ has suffered for thy sins and redeemed thee with his most precious blood. Shall I suffer thy memory to become a storehouse of evil, or thy passions to be firebrands of iniquity? Shall I surrender my judgment to be perverted by error, or my will to be led in fetters of iniquity? No, my soul, thou art Christ's, and sin hath no right to thee. Be courageous concerning this old Christian. Be not dispirited, as though your spiritual enemies could never be destroyed. You are able to overcome them, not in your own strength. The weakest of them would be too much for you in that. But you can and shall overcome them through the blood of the Lamb. Do not ask, How shall I dispossess them? For they are greater and mightier than I. But go to the strong for strength. Wait humbly upon God, and the mighty God of Jacob will surely come to the rescue, and you shall sing a victory through his grace. Morning, April 7th O ye sons of men, how long will you turn my glory into shame? Psalm 4, verse 2 An instructive writer has made a mournful list of the honors which the blinded people of Israel awarded to their long-expected king. 1. They gave him a procession of honor, in which Roman legionnaires, Jewish priests, men and women took a part, he himself bearing his cross. This is the triumph which the world awards to him who comes to overthrow man's direst foes. Derisive shouts are his only acclamations, and cruel taunts his only paeans of praise. 2. They presented him with the wine of honor. Instead of a golden cup of generous wine, they offered him the criminal's stupefying death draft, which he refused because he would preserve an uninjured taste wherewith to taste of death. And afterwards, when he cried, I thirst, they gave him vinegar mixed with gall, thrust to his mouth upon a sponge. O oh, wretched detestable inhospitality to the king's son! 3. He was provided with a guard of honor, who showed their esteem of him by gambling over his garments, which they had seized as their booty. 
such was the bodyguard of the adored of heaven, a quaternion of brutal gamblers. 4. A throne of honor was found for him upon the bloody tree. No easier place of rest would rebel men yield to their liege lord. The cross was, in fact, the full expression of the world's feeling towards him. There, they seem to say, thou son of God, this is the manner in which God himself should be treated, could we reach him. 5. The title of honor was nominally King of the Jews, but that the blinded nation distinctly repudiated, and really called him King of Thieves by preferring Barabbas, and by placing Jesus in the place of highest shame between two thieves. His glory was thus in all things turned into shame by the sons of men, but it shall yet gladden the eyes of saints and angels, world without end. Evening, April 7th. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. Psalm 51, verse 14. In this solemn confession, it is pleasing to observe that David plainly names his sin. He does not call it manslaughter, nor speak of it as an imprudence by which an unfortunate accident occurred to a worthy man, but he calls it by its true name, blood guiltiness. He did not actually kill the husband of Bathsheba, but still it was planned in David's heart that Uriah should be slain, and he was before the Lord his murderer. Learn in confession to be honest with God. Do not give fair names to foul sins. Call them what you will, they will smell no sweeter. What God sees them to be, that do you labor to feel them to be. And with all openness of heart, acknowledge their real character. Observe that David was evidently oppressed with the heinousness of his sin. It is easy to use words, but it is difficult to feel their meaning. The 51st Psalm is the photograph of a contrite spirit. Let us seek after the like brokenness of heart. For however excellent our words may be, if our heart is not conscious of the hell-deservingness of sin, we cannot expect to find forgiveness. Our text has in it an earnest prayer. It is addressed to the God of salvation. It is His prerogative to forgive. It is his very name and office to save those who seek his face. Better still, the text calls him the God of my salvation. Yes, blessed be his name. While I am yet going to him through Jesus' blood, I can rejoice in the God of my salvation. The psalmist ends with a commendable vow. If God will deliver him, he will sing. Nay, more, he will sing aloud. Who can sing in any other style of such a mercy as this? But note the subject of the song, Thy Righteousness. We must sing of the finished work of a precious Savior, and he who knows most of forgiving love will sing the loudest. End of April 1st through April 7th Recording by Mike Ockenick